For those of you who have been here a while, you know that we are at the very beginning of a 10-year process toward spiritual maturity. And so far, in the first trimester, we have talked about what it takes to get through the first mile before you even get to the second mile. I mean, let's not talk about spiritual maturity yet. We've got to make sure that we are lining up what we need to get through the first mile. We've decided that we have to have a an expanding view of God in order to be able to more accurately know who he is. We will never get through the first mile until we are ready to expand our understanding of who God really is in our lives. B, we have to not only have the Bible as the sole authority of our lives, but as the everyday infusion to our lives so that God can speak to us directly. We can never pretend to be spiritually mature without reading Scripture. See, we have to realize sinfulness, our own sinfulness. We have to realize where we are accurately as sinners. And that not just as a done deal for those of us who have... Who have um, uh, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but that as a constant healing process with him. And then last week, of course, we talked about that healing process. We talked about the atonement of Christ. And we talked about our reliance upon Christ, not only as our forgiver, but as our cure for our sinfulness. So therefore, we have gone through a doctrine of God, doctrine of man, or doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of man, and doctrine of Christ. Now we're up to the Holy Spirit. We're going to, t- we're going to spend a few weeks on this, if you don't mind. There is a process after salvation. Now, most Christians who are just acquainted tangentially with Christianity believe that the process goes that you get saved and then you try and behave yourself until you go to heaven. And that's basically it. That is much like in the first life, in the natural man, getting born and basically trying to behave yourself until you die. There's about that much fulfillment in it. And for those of you Christians who are just living life as a saved person, who's just kind of trying to cope um, in a natural way with the everyday uh, nuances of life, you will find your lives are becoming not only more and more frustrating, but more and more boring and more and more meaningless because you have no purpose in them other than to survive spiritually until you can get to heaven. God has more for us than that. That process is called sanctification. Sanctification is the process not only of increasing our spiritual capacity and of making progress along a certain spiritual spectrum, but it's a process of actually being changed into different people. It's a process of being altered and transformed into totally different people. We may have the same personality all our life, but we will be very different people with that personality as we grow spiritually. Now, what I want to do this morning is talk to you about five different traditions or theological views of sanctification. Now, I'm going to give you much more information than you, can, than you can possibly assimilate this morning. That is the value of tapes. If you will buy a tape and you will listen to it over and over again, God will touch your heart where you need to be touched. But I'm going to just 
just give it to you, you know, like with a fire. It's like getting a drink from a fire hose, you know. Uh, there's just more there than you need or want this morning. And so uh, uh, save it up and uh, listen to it again, if you would, please. And by the way, let me give you, I'll do this from time to time. I try to read two or three books per sermon. And when I come across one that is very helpful, um, I want to show it to you for those of you who like to read. This, much of what you're going to hear this morning is out of a book called Christian Spirituality. Um, it, it's five views of sanctification written from the Reformed, Lutheran, Wesleyan, Pentecostal, and Contemplative uh, viewpoints by five of those theologians, theologians from those traditions. And that's what I want to review for you this morning because I think it's tremendously helpful for us. First of all, you will realize from looking at the sermon texts that the Bible often refers to different stages of spiritual development. In 1 Corinthians, it is the natural man represented by the guy who wanted to shoot the guy, had no qualms whatsoever, just trying to think of some form of revenge. Then the second person up here was the carnal Christian. She had just given her life to Christ, but was trying to figure out how she could manage the other guy's life. Now, that's only a little different than revenge, because correction can become very hostile, as you realize from having Christians in your life who were there teaching you in love. I just want to say this in love, brother. And you can't really tell the difference between that and getting blasted. Where where was that love again? So there is, there's a part of us after we're saved that's not really different than before. I mean, it's not actually transformed, and we go on thinking in the same ways, thinking that we're being more spiritual. And then the spiritual man, represented by the last lady, who really did have a heart for the gentleman, tried to understand from God's perspective and from his perspective, and tried to pray according to that. Um, in First John, he, he says, I write to you children, I write to you fathers, I write to you young men. He's not talking literal children, literal fathers, literal young men. There are three qualities of spiritual development. And so therefore, all during Scripture, there's a recognition of these stages of spiritual development. Now, let's go after this. There is, the first view of sanctification that I want to give to you comes from a Lutheran standpoint. A Lutheran theologian wrote, that sanctification really needs none of our participation whatsoever, thank you very much. Because as soon as we try to plot out a road to sanctification, we mess it up. Just as we have absolutely no power to be saved, so we have no power to become holy. Just as that is a grace of God, so that grace is continued in the process of sanctification. So a Lutheran... Uh, perspective of sanctification would be get used to your justification. Just get used to it. Get used to unmerited, uh, unconditional love. And when you get used to that, then God is infused into your life. It's not that you are running to get closer to God. It's that God is coming more and more into you. There's a, there's a scripture reading that is very much like that in 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is one of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible. It says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image 
from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now, what activity is he doing in order to make his sanctification come about? Absolutely none. He's just looking at God. And from keeping his eyes upon Jesus, he is being transformed. The Lutheran problem is that as soon as we talk about sanctification, we arrange a schedule and a list of good works, and we equate holiness with being good. You know, people who get saved and they say, okay, now I've got to quit this and this and this and this and this. And at first, they, they equate becoming closer to God by their own behavior. Well, you can get a lot of, in a lot of trouble like that. So, the Lutheran would say, literally, let go and let God. I remember the first time I ever heard that, that it was not somebody trying to escape their own responsibility. A lot of people say that, and they're just trying to escape personal responsibility. But I knew this one tremendously competent woman who was a real leader in every sense of the term. And she not only managed her life well, she did literally manage her the, the lives around her, probably could have managed the universe had she been given the job. And I remember one day hearing her say, you know, I really just need to let go and let God have this and quit trying to get in the way. And I almost passed out. But I knew that if she said it, it really was in order to affect it more appropriately than just to escape responsibility. So therefore, that's the Lutheran view. Okay, let's move over to the Reformed view. This is for all you Presbyterians and people of the RCA church and so on and so forth. Very valuable. All of these have something valuable to offer us. The Reformed view is, well, you don't let it totally go. What you do is, you come into a closer union with Christ. See, Christ, the Bible says, is our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.13 Christ himself is our sanctification. So therefore, union with Christ through the scriptures affects our sanctification. It is affected neither by personal inducement nor by divine fiat. It is a cooperation of God with people. And therefore, the closer we come into union with Christ the more it will happen just in our character very, very naturally. It is coming close to someone who has the only account from which we can draw. We can't become holy out of our own good works. All our works have a little tinge of sin to them, or sometimes a lot of a tinge of sin. But what we can do is we can come so close to Christ that we can actually draw on who he is and then put it back into the world. Let me give you a lousy example. All of my examples are lousy, but God uses them somehow, and you understand them, and, and so that's the work of the Spirit. But this is a terrible analogy. Have you ever had a coach in your life that you just wanted to get close to him? See? Because as you, you your goal was to become a good athlete, but you knew as you became close to him and you learned how he thought and how he reacted and what his strategy was, that, a, that, a, that eventually you would assimilate that into your playing ability. Now, you did not go to that coach without reading the playbook. This, by the way, is the playbook for Christians. This is, this is a strategy right here. You wouldn't go to say, 
Well, Coach, I just want to be close to you. You know, I just want to hang around you. Let's be close friends, you know. You wouldn't do that. You would go and you would say, look, I have done my homework. And I know the place. Because that's the first thing the coach would tell you. Anyhow, you've got to know your place. I have done my homework. And therefore, I just want to soak in who you are. Because I know that will transform me as an athlete. Well, that's much like the Reformed view of what sanctification is. There is no event that makes you or that says you are this or this or this or this. It is a it's whole process of what God is doing from your union with him. Okay, Wesleyan. Those of you of a Methodist background or a Wesleyan background or a Salvation Army background or, or a Nazarene background, okay? Wesley said... Look, I appreciate all the theology, and that's what, that's what, that's what uh, most uh, Reformed people and most Lutherans talk in. They talk in logic. And, and if this, then that. This is the major premise, this is the minor premise, and this is for the conclusion. And Wesley said, I appreciate all that theology, but Wesley had a heart for common people and human experience. And he said, most of our lives aren't lived in theological classes. Most of our lives are lived... Here. And so, therefore, I believe that sanctification is a process that can be experienced on a human level. And I believe that not only can it be pursued as such, he said, pursue holiness. And it is up to us to initiate some of that pursuit. A good scripture, by the way, for Wesley would be uh, Philippians 2, 12, and 13, where it says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, listen, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. Now, what Wesley would say is there's a dialectic. There is a process by which we have been declared righteous by Christ, but we've got to find out what that is like to live it in the real world. We've got to experience it. And the process is going to go on, but there will come a time when what they called entire sanctification is possible. And entire sanctification is not sinless living. It is having the intent to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and our neighbor as ourself and never willingly to practice sin. There will be times, from time to time, we spontaneously fall into sin. They would, they would admit that. But it's sanctification is never to plan out and willingly fall into sin. And they believe there was a time in your life when you could experience that. I remember being ordained as a Methodist preacher 20 years ago, and one of the questions they asked us was, listen to this, how would you answer this? Do you expect to go on to perfection in this life? Whoa. And of course, all of us answered, yeah, we wanted to get into ministry. But you think about that. Well, perfection to them is the perfection of intent. But there are certain noticeable experiences 
One in particular that you can count on along the way. There are, there are, it's like different gears. It's like shifting into different gears. Um, John Fletcher is a Wesleyan theologian, and he has something called Trinitarian dispensationalism. How do you like that? And what that is, is he says that the closer people come to knowing who God really is, the more they know him in his different persons, in his different faces. Persona means mask. It's not real different persons. It's, ma- it's faces of God. That's what that Greek means. And so therefore, all people in spiritual infancy would know God as Father. Most people look up to God as their Father and Creator. But then, when you come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you shift into a whole other gear spiritually. And then, when you come to know the Holy Spirit as the face of God, you come to a totally different realm spiritually. Now, they, they're not saying that those are two different experiences. You can't know... Wesleyan would say you can't know Jesus without knowing the Holy Spirit. But you can know Jesus without being filled with the Holy Spirit and, being, and having the Holy Spirit actually operate in your life. And so they go for that, that third gear, you see. It would be the difference for the Old Testament scholars of the exodus and the conquest. We, it was the same people who, exodus, who exited the uh, slavery of Egypt. And then they wandered around the wilderness really on some sort of, you know, they must, that's, wilderness is not very big. They must have wandered around in circles for 40 years. And then they finally came to Jordan and conquered the land. Well, was that two processes, three processes? No, it was only one process. But there were different stages of it, you see. And, and the freedom, which to us would be the analogy of the freedom from sin that comes with justification, was certainly different than the freedom of conquest, which to us is the sanctification part. We really do know we have the victory, and we behave and live according to the victory. You see? It's like shifting gears. Those of you who have driven... You remember your first time of driving a stick shift? Let me tell you about my first time. My first time was with the father of my girlfriend. He was going to loan me their VW Bug for the prom. And this guy is 6'2", hulky, bald-headed, mean-looking, and I don't want to do anything to offend him. So he says, just one day I walked in the thing, uh, so Hunter, you ever driven a stick shift? And my first response, I had never even seen a stick shift. My first response, sure, I know how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> Stupid. He goes, okay, let's go out in the bug and you can drive me around. I went, oh. And so we got in the thing, he crawls in, punches over and looks at me. I go, and I knew where first was, you know, I knew enough of that. I go, and I got it out of first without stalling. I thought, oh, thank you, God. Put in the clutch. Pulled it back to second. Mm. I was perfectly satisfied with second. <laughs> I hadn't killed us. The gearbox hadn't dropped out. I was okay with second. We spent about five minutes in second. Finally, he looked over and said, You know this thing has more than two gears, don't you? You know, I feel like God's saying the same thing to us. You know, there's natural man and there's carnal Christianity and we're perfectly satisfied. And God's saying, you know, this thing has more than two gears, don't you? There's a very limited range you can go. I mean, you can get there, okay? But there's a very limited range you can go. 
until you discover the third and fourth gears. And so therefore, it's important, Wesley said, to understand that you can pursue holiness. And it doesn't all just, it's not an automatic transmission, you know? There are certain things that you can do in obedience to come into that kind of holiness. Now let me tell you about the Pentecostal background. If, if we were, I'm getting my exercises where I'm all psyched up. I love talking theology. If we were to classify Protestantism and say, what is the essence of Protestantism? We would be able to say, Protestantism is the pursuit of sound doctrine so that we can understand God and appropriate him in our lives and and in whatever realm he wants to be. If we were to say, what is the essence of Roman Catholicism? The essence could be defined as Roman Catholicism has as its essence specific participation in the visible and historic church. That is the essence of Roman Catholicism. If you were to say, what is the essence of Pentecostalism? They would say personal experience is pivotal. In other words, a Pentecostal not only defines human experience, they say, what's happened to you? When, when, a, when you ask a Pentecostal, what's your sign? They say, well, my nose got healed. Or my wife came back, you know, or something like that. In other words, they say that it's important that God not only be able to have a theology, and they don't pay a great deal of attention to theology, especially in classical Pentecostalism, but they say it is important for us to personally have some manifestation of God working in our life, and that is what we are free to pursue. And so sanctification is a process of getting God to work miracles in us as the proof that he is in us. There is, a, there is a, of course, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is, a pro, is, 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 is uh, initiated by a visible personal sign, and that is speaking in tongues. This is classical Pentecostalism. Charis- charismatics are milder and more general and, much, and, and more um, respectful of intellectual thought, but this is classical Pentecostalism. And so therefore, to them, their scripture verse would be, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit. And that is what they would capitalize on. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you, um, I forgot to give you all the shortcomings and all the strengths as we went along, but, uh, but uh, figure them out yourself. Here's a shortcoming. <laughs> you can do it. You're intelligent. Now, a shortcoming of, of Pentecostalism is that the theology is worked backwards from the conclusions. That is, this has happened to my life, therefore God must be like this. See? Now, a, a shortcoming of this, this section over here, the Lutherans and the, and the Pentecost, or the, the uh, Reformed would say, God is like this. And never come to the, therefore he must, do, he must be doing this in my life, you know? I mean, that's possible in, in the narrow view of those things. Well, in a narrow view of Pentecostalism, they work backwards in a perfect illustration is in John 9 where they, hi- they healed the blind man and then they came and asked him theological questions about Jesus. And they said, well, isn't he a sinner? And the blind man said, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that where I was blind, now I see. 
And in verse 33, it's, a, it's an example of the backwards uh, reasoning for theology. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. See how, they, who they, how they, he argues backwards as to who Jesus must be. Now, that's a shortcoming, but look at the tremendous strength that Pentecostalism has given the Protestant movement. Whereas the Lutherans said, just get out of control here, will you? Let God have this. Keep your hands off of it. He can do it better than you can. And the Reformed people said, come into union with Christ. Be obedient with him and come close to Christ. And as you come close to Christ, God will work out in your life what he has for your life. And the Wesleyans said, now look, you can experience the sanctification and the love of God and what his holiness is for your life. So look for it in the everyday. And look for that realization to come upon you. And pursue holiness. It's okay to take the initiative and say, God, I want to, I want to come after you. Pentecostal said, what do you got to prove it? Did you ever ask for anything specifically from God? Have you ever been in a, in a mainline church that's afraid to pray for anything specifically? You know? Well, God, we just love you. Well, that's all. Thanks. You know? It's like... I've got this giant need. You mind? The wonderful thing that the Pentecostals has given us is the permission to say, would you please come and relieve my loneliness? Would you please come and heal this part of my life? Would you please settle this dispute over here? So on and so forth. I mean, that may not be God in God's plan for you, and the radical part of Pentecostalism demands it of God, which is, of course, ludicrous, but... What if he has it and he's waiting for you to ask and you never ask? Isn't that goofy? You bet it is. So that's a tremendous contribution. Now, one more. The contemplative tradition. I love this. This, this is transhistoric, transdenominational. It takes in Roman Catholics all the way through Protestants and it's all of the wonderful saints that have spent a good part of their life in prayer and contemplation. It goes from people like uh, Bernard of Clairvaux and Teresa of Avila uh, to Thomas Merton. And, uh, uh, and I would even say that Oswald Chambers would be a modern-day contemplative. Um, these are people who say, look, there are, two there are two realms of life. One is the activity level. It, uh, it has to do with everything that we want to do and everything we want to accomplish. And then there is the interior life. Most people spend 99% of their energy on the activity level and never get to the interior life of communion with God, of looking after those things which are profound and wise. When the activity level looks for information, it is for answers to practical questions. When the the contemplative looks. He looks for the wisdom of the ages, for the things that never wear out. And they would say that the most important thing in all the world, listen to this, I love this. When you get right down to it, Brother Lawrence, for example, would say, of the practicing the presence of God, Brother Lawrence would say the most important thing in all the world is to fall head over heels in love with God. That's the most important thing. St. Augustine used to say, love God and do what you like. 
Well, that's pretty shocking, isn't it? But if you love God, you'll do what he likes. Now look, there is a ladder. The contemplators would say that there is a ladder. Bernard of Clairvaux specifically said there is a ladder of love. I, love, I, I like this. First of all, there is the love of self for self's sake. This is the looking, out, uh, uh, looking out after number one philosophy. Winning by intimidation, Robert Ringer, and so on and so forth. And that's how most of the world operates, you know? I've got to protect myself. I've got to do this for me, and, and, and I can benefit by doing this, okay? The next stage up on the ladder of love is a love of God for self. And I don't know whether this is true or not. My hunch is there is a great majority of Christians who have this kind of love, who say, well, okay, I don't really want to burn in hell. How about coming into my life? Who say, yeah, I got a great need. Okay, come on in. Answer it. Um, that is carnal Christianity. But the next stage up, the next rung up, is love of God for, for God's sake. Now, many say this is the highest there is. I'm going to tell you one more after this. Love of God for God's sake. <clears throat> and these are the people who get to the stage where they realize that God is what is everlasting. And so they say, and they really truly appreciate God for what he has done and who he is, and they are just content to love him for his own sake because they know it pleases him when we love him and we praise him. That pleases him. But the fourth level is this. Love of self for God's sake. Now listen to this. When you really love someone, you not only begin to love them, you begin to love what they love. Guess what God loves? You. And we begin to see our lives as being made healthy, not for our sake, but because God loves us and because that will gratify Him a great deal if we begin to see our lives like he sees them and begin to see the sanctity of our lives like he made them to be. For his sake, not for ours. Isn't that neat? Love that. But the bottom line is this. That we can love God and center our world upon that love. I don't know where we lose that along the line. Somewhere we click into this mechanical Christianity. And it was never meant to be like that. Somewhere we lose our first love. One time, some people came over to our house for counseling, and I asked Becky to sit in with, it, with me because this was a couple I couldn't quite figure out. And Becky has some real good insight, although she hardly ever says much. And typically, through the whole thing, she didn't say a word. I kept asking him questions. Of course, he came with his list of complaints, and she came with her list of complaints. And, uh, and I, typical man... Well, let's negotiate this. So this, everything's negotiable, you know. So we worked out a contract where she gave in a little, and he gave in a little. If you do this, will you do it? Yeah. If you do this, will you? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Ended up with this great covenant together. Okay, how they were going to treat each other, and so on and so forth. From now on, that both of them could um, could do. And I said, well, I'm just going to pray that God will give you the strength to live out your covenant together. And for some reason, both of them looked at Becky at the same time, like. So what are you going to pray for? And Becky looked at them and said, 
I tell you what I'm going to pray for. I'm going to pray that you fall crazy nuts in love with each other again. That's what I'm going to pray for. Never even occurred to me. <laughs> well, yeah, that would probably do something right there if they... contemplative would say, no matter where you are, fall in love with God. Love Him. And do what you please. That's sanctification. Would you pray with me? God, we are so many different places with you. There are some folks in here I know who are struggling as to whether or not they even believe in you. Go to them and continue to woo them, please. Continue to interest them. Continue to raise questions in their minds that will make them seek you. There are some this morning who have believed in you but have never come to a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And they can go no further. They are stymied in their spiritual growth. Lord God, please, please woo them into a personal relationship with you. Let them this morning say, I want you, Jesus, as my Savior. That I have sinned. I have separated myself from God. And you are my cure. So come into my heart and make of my life what you want it to be. And there are those of us who have prayed that prayer, Lord God, and we've gotten stuck along the way. We're stuck in second gear. And it's okay, because we're still going someplace, but there are more gears. Would you please send a message to each one of us among whom all of us need to hear one of those points very clearly, either to let go or to come closer, or to switch into another gear, or to look for some personal way that you would perform a miracle in our life for the sake of your kingdom, or to love you, be crazy nuts in love with you. Help us to hear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.